Today we're going to begin a study in the third epistle of John, John 3, 3 John. We've already completed 1st and 2nd John. Again, the date of this epistle is around 90 AD, where John was approximately 84 years of age. Now, unlike the first two, 1st John and 2nd John, which were written to churches, groups of believers, this is a very personal letter addressed to a friend of his named Gaius, or Gaius, and it focuses on the issue of, we won't get that far today, but once we get into the meat of the letter, John is focusing on the issue of traveling teachers, not false teachers, but true representatives of Christ who were traveling to the various churches and teaching and how they were to be treated by the host church. And so one of the leaders in the church, Gaius or Gaius, had extended hospitality to them, while another one of the leaders, Diotrephes, who was a self-assertive leader, if you, I don't know if you've ever known anybody like that, I have. Uh, self-assertive leader is one that decided that they were a leader without anybody else telling them that. Diotrephes was a self-assertive leader in one of the churches, and he had refused to receive them. So John exercises his apostolic authority in rebuking Diotrephes in verse 10. Demetrius, who himself may have been a traveling teacher, probably delivered this letter to Gaius. So here in 3 John, we kind of get the other side of the coin from the book of Jude. Jude was warning against false teachers rising up from within the ranks of the local church. John encourages openness and hospitality to those traveling teachers who were presenting the truth of God's Word. And we've had uh, some of those folks come and visit us down through the years, different ones that have come to minister to us, bringing the truth of God's Word, whereas Jude was concerned about just the opposite. So let's read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pray. Third John 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this little one-chapter book, this third epistle of John to his friend Gaius. We ask, Father, that as we begin this study today, you would just pour out your Spirit upon us. Give us insight and understanding that we might receive the message that you have for us today from John by your Holy Spirit. Lord, just plant your word deep within our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The elder, and this is John calling himself the elder. So it's a very brief, succinct, humble greeting, but it does speak clearly of John's authority, which he felt he needed to kind of emphasize, not because of Gaius, but because of the other people involved. John was an elder, which uh, is synonymous with being a pastor or a shepherd of the flock. We believe in the Ephesian church. We also know that above all else, he was one of the twelve Apostles, but he just simply refers to himself as the elder to the beloved or 
Some translations read, to my friend, my dear friend, Gaius. There are five times in Paul's writings where he uses this type of a greeting for various Christian friends. Here John uses it four times in just this one small letter. And we sang that song this morning, I am a friend of God. As believers, we are called friends of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. I don't think there can be any higher compliment, higher acknowledgement. You know, there are many titles that people will aspire to in this world. CEO, right? President, king, what have you. But I can't think of a a more significant uh, nomenclature than to be identified as a friend of God. Here in John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants now, but we call ourselves servants, right? In fact, Paul said, I'm the bond servant. I'm the bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our humble position. And yet Jesus says, I don't call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And this is a big distinction with true biblical Christianity. There are many cult groups that, that try to operate under the umbrella of Christianity. And then there are various other belief systems in the world. But all of these other belief systems and cult groups all operate under the veil of secrecy. You know, we have secret information. You know, the Masons. Every group has them. And if you want to be enlightened, if you want to be in the know, then you need to join our group. And once you're part of our group, then we will slowly integrate you into our secret mysteries. No. Jesus says, I've made all things known to you that I've received from the Father. The whole point of the New Testament is the unveiling, the revealing. It's been said that Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed. He's there, but you've got to look for him. And in the New Testament, revealed. So dead giveaway. Anytime you come across a person or group of people representing a particular belief system, and they tell you, well, uh, first we have to pass the bill before we can tell you what's in it. <laughs> little throw a little politics in there. <laughs> little Nancy Pelosi. Pansy Nolosi. That's what I call her. Anytime they tell you, well, you can't really know till you join up, that ain't God. You can know all you need to know just from reading this book. Now God has raised up apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. And so it does help to sit under uh, someone who's called to teach and preach the Word of God to increase our insight, knowledge, understanding. But anytime somebody tells you, you need them before you can know the truth, then they're full of baloney. I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master's doing. I just saw a... uh, headline on a magazine, I hope it's true, it said Tom Cruise had left Scientology. I hope that's true. 
another example of a secretive group where you have to, not only do you have to sign up, you've got to pay a lot of money. That's another dead giveaway. I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. So even as Jesus has called us all his friends, and here John refers to Gaius or Gaius as his dear friend, we should all treat one another as friends. In fact, the Quaker denomination is also called the friends. They identified themselves as friends. And then even beyond that, and this is okay, I want to talk about this for a moment. We have to look at the idea that as believers, yes, we share a common faith and we are called to love one another, agape one another, unconditional love, but we're also called to be friends. That might be the hardest part. Sometimes we can love someone in the Lord and not necessarily really like them that much. <laughs> I've experienced that a lot. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure about the love in the Lord part as far as that goes. But David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel 18, 3, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. That's not something that happens every day of the week. But hopefully as we go through life, there will be from time to time those special relationships from which we derive great strength, encouragement, comfort, and it's a mutual thing. It goes both ways. And even Jesus had special friends. John eleven five. 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that family, the two sisters and brother, were people that Jesus had a pretty special relationship with. And then John 13, 23 now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that's John, of course, referring to himself. And he does that four times in his gospel, refers to himself anonymously as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So again, indicating a special level of relationship. I'm not sure all 12 of the apostles would have felt comfortable leaning on Jesus' bosom at the Passover supper, at the Last Supper. But John did. And so I think there's a message in that, that yes, we're all to love one another. We should make the effort to be friends to one another, but there's nothing wrong with having a few. You can't have a lot, but a few special relationships and cultivating those because they can be very valuable, as was the case with David and Jonathan, Jesus with Peter, James, and John, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, those folks. Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, so there are those who want to be everybody's friend. The problem with that is sometimes you have to compromise, you have to sacrifice some of your values, your beliefs, your principles in order to be everybody's friend. But when you get down to this level of special relationships like we're talking about, that, you, that more than likely is going to involve mutual values, beliefs, principles, centered around and focused, of course, on the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word. 
You can only take a relationship so far without those elements. And to try to push it beyond that uh, puts you in jeopardy of being unequally yoked, as the Bible says. Being in a relationship with somebody who doesn't share your values, doesn't share your beliefs, doesn't mean you shouldn't be nice to them, be friendly to them, even be loving to them. And I think sometimes, I, I don't think, I know, sometimes the enemy tries to di- divert our time, energy, and money, our resources, into trying to develop relationships that should never be developed. And ignoring other relationships which we should really be investing in. Food for thought. A man of many companions may come to ruin. So in other words, just because you have a lot of friends doesn't mean that when the, you know, the, uh, the rain falls, when the storms come, that all those folks are going to be there for you, more than likely not. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, of course, evangelistically, or evangelistically, many have used this verse to say that this is about Jesus, and it certainly can be. There's no doubt Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, but really, and I'm reading from the NIV here because this is, I believe, the best, at least one of the best translations of this verse. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, so what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is that you can have a lot of shallow surface relationships that may not be there when you need them, But there is, like with David and Jonathan, like with Jesus and John, and even Peter and James, there is that friend who sticks closer than your own biological family. And so I think one of the messages here at least is it's okay, it's even good to have a few close friends rather than trying to invest our time and energy into having a vast network. And of course, today with social media, everybody's got a gazillion friends, right? Friend me. There's even a TV show. I haven't watched it. God friended me, which is, I mean, it's true. We just, I'm a friend of God, right? I don't know what the program's about. I have no idea. But friend me, like me, right? So it's possible. I mean, there are people who have millions of followers, right, on social media. And I'm sure that if real trouble came, every one of those people would immediately come to their aid, right? You get my point. So, to my dear friend, Gaius. Gaius has been identified by some with uh, the Gaius mentioned in the Apostolical Constitutions as having been appointed bishop of Pergamum, which is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, that being appointed as bishop of Pergamum by John, the writer of this letter. So we think that's who Gaius was, Gaius, whom I love, and here's where it gets really important, significant, and very John-ish. Whom I love in the truth. Now, why was John able to have such a deep friendship with Gaius? The reason John loved Gaius so deeply is that Gaius was deeply committed to what? Gaius was deeply committed to the truth. And where does that come from? One, from the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Two, from Jesus himself, who is the embodiment of truth, right? 
John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Gaius was deeply committed to God, to God's Word, to Jesus who is the truth. Now we know, we've, we've learned from 1 John, 2 John, and even from the Gospel of John, that John is the apostle of love, and he's also the apostle of We could try that again. John is the apostle of? That's better. In fact, he uses the word 52 times in 47 verses in his gospel, gospel of John. In his three epistles, he uses the word 22 times in 19 verses. That's a total of 74 times. Do you suppose that John was all about the truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help him, God. Here's a very significant point to be made. No deep, committed love relationship can survive and thrive without the truth. Hello. That's probably one of the most damaging things to any relationship, whether it's between a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman. Father, son, mother, daughter, on and on. Truth. Verse 2. Beloved, dear friend, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Hello, here's a verse we got to talk about. I love the King James. I love the New King James, which is what I'm reading out of today. But this is one verse that the faith teachers, those who are part of the faith movement, the prosperity movement, the health and wealth movement, have really mutilated and co-opted to the max. In the King James it says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. And what some folks have done is they've used this verse to teach that it is God's will for all believers at all times that they experience perfect divine health, and that they be materially prosperous. By the way, that's not what the Bible teaches, by any stretch of the imagination. But anything short of that, if you don't believe that, if you don't walk in that belief that it's God's will that you be wealthy, that you have perfect health at all times, then you're not walking in faith, and therefore you are in sin. Paul himself apparently suffered physical afflictions that God chose not to remove. I sought the Lord three times, he said. And the Lord told me, my grace is sufficient for you. Timothy had stomach problems. Paul said, Timothy, I want to encourage you to drink a little wine for your frequent stomach ailments. Drinking water was a bit dicey in those days, and the fermentation process uh, in making wine would remove the harmful bacteria. So said, Paul, drink a little wine Plus the yeast in there help with digestion as well. So there are numerous indications in both the Old and New Testament that very godly men and women had physical afflictions. Does that mean they, they were in sin and they didn't have any faith? This teaching is absolutely, totally unbiblical to the point of being absurd. First of all, John's comments here are directed to one specific individual. Remember, this is a personal letter. Gaius. 
I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So John's saying, you know, to the degree, Gaius, that I know that you are spiritually healthy, my hope and my prayer is that spills over into the other areas of your life. And the word prosper here, we think of it in terms of prosperity, wealth, money, riches. It simply means to thrive. I pray that you may thrive in all things and be in health. And John isn't promising he's going to be in health. He just says, I, I, I pray that you are. I hope you are. That's my prayer for you. And the bottom line is John is connecting that to spiritual prosperity or thriving. These are his personal wishes for a dear friend, and they have a lot more to do with Gaia's spiritual well-being than anything else. John's hope, his desire, and prayer for his dear friend is that things will go well for him in physical and emotional life, go as well as they are in his spiritual life. And that's it. But here, this is, you can see this is how easy it is for people to take one verse and run with it and make it mean something entirely different than what it really means. You see? One verse, folks. And it's been totally distorted and mistaught and actually deceived millions of people into uh, practicing a false belief system. And what I've seen time and time again is when people embrace this and then it doesn't work for them because it's, it's taught like a formula. You need to name this and claim this. You need to tell God how the cow eats the cabbage. God, you promised that I was going to prosper, either monetarily, physically, and when it doesn't happen, people crash and burn because they've been mistaught, they've been misled. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that God's people throughout the Old and New Testament suffered a lot. And then when you tell people, oh no, if you have enough faith, you won't suffer. You'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, everything's going to be peaches and cream. When you teach people that garbage and then it doesn't happen, many people lose their faith. And that's why we have so many people today that say, well, yeah, I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church. I used to believe. Sadly, a lot of that comes down to people being misled, mistaught, led astray, deceived. So a lot of people would like to downplay the importance of studying the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, taking things in context. Well, brother, that's just too restrictive. We just want to let go and let God. We want to move in the Holy Ghost. Put those notes aside and let's get down with Jesus. And that's what you get. You get a lot of people who have fallen by the wayside. They've been crushed, broken, disappointed, disillusioned. Because if we build our faith on anything other than the solid rock of God's word, the truth, and Jesus Christ... That's what you get. And that's why G John is so adamant about it. What did I say, man? Fifty-something times in, uh, in his gospel. Fifty-two times in 47 verses, truth. Twenty-two times in 19 verses of the three epistles. John was all about the truth. 
So I want to read that verse again from the NIV before we move on. Dear friend Gaius, I pray that you may enjoy good health. Did he promise him good health? Dear Gaius, dear friend, I guarantee you good health up until the moment you die. How does that happen? I don't get it. He was in perfect health. Apparently not. Something wasn't right. You don't go from perfectly healthy to dead without something being wrong, right? Now, we have been promised that in eternity, when we receive our new, immortal, eternal, incorruptible, glorified body. And see, that's another problem. Some of these teachers, they take things that apply to eternity and try to apply them in the here and now. And it doesn't work. That's why Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven, right? Not on earth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. There you go. I pray that you may enjoy good health. Now, because of that statement, some commentators suspect that Gaius indeed may have been dealing with some type of illness or health problem. So rather than what the faith teachers would tell you, that it's a promise for perfect health, it's actually just the opposite, where there was some concern on John's part, and so he said, I'm praying that you will be healthy, because I know you've got some issues you're dealing with, and that all may go well with you. So this is what the word prosper means here. It doesn't mean prosperity in the sense of, oh, lots of money and all this. It means that all things will go well. It means to thrive, to do well. And by the way, when you really love and care for someone, as John did for Gaius, your desire for them is that things will go well for them in every area of their lives, right? Isn't that, when you think about your loved ones, when you pray for them, aren't you praying for every aspect of their lives? Yeah, that's what John's doing here with Gaius. And so, since we're all called to be friends in Christ, we should desire this for every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, provided that they are in the truth. Hello. Why did John love Gaius so deeply? Because he was in the truth. Now, if someone you know isn't walking in the truth, in your own human compassion, you would still want them to do well, but sometimes things have to go badly so that things will get right. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't it unfortunate but true that most people, before they come to God, they have to hit the bottom of the barrel? And yet again, here's another flaw with this prosperity message. It goes out to people regardless of what their spiritual condition may be. You're just proclaiming it carte blanche, shotgun blast fashion for anybody and everybody. And if you, a person's sitting out there and they're not in right relationship with God, if they're not walking in the truth, they should have no expectation of God prospering them. We don't earn our salvation, but the Bible definitely speaks of blessings that come to those who walk uprightly before the Lord. The first psalm talks about that. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the counsel of the ungodly, walk in the way of sinners. Even as your soul is getting along well, 
So regardless of his health or other aspects of his life, one thing that John did know was that Gaius' spiritual life was excellent because he was in the truth. Verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, for just as you walk in the truth, and then we'll pick it up, just as you walk in the truth. Now, here's, a, here's an important question we all need to ask ourselves. Is it possible for us to think of ourselves as being in the truth when we really aren't? Is that possible? 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached... Paul and his associates, God's chosen representatives. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not received, you may well put up with it. Paul was concerned about the Corinthians that in their spiritual immaturity, they were extremely vulnerable to another Jesus. Oh, Jesus calling. Hello. And some of these flaky Bible translations, like the massage. I like a massage as much as anybody, but not that one. Another Jesus, a different spirit. By the way, Paul also taught us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. The gospel that leaves out sin and repentance. That's the most popular gospel today, by the way. Do you know that? You know, I, I've told you this before. I've you know, watch some of Rick Warren's videos trying to figure out where he's coming from. And he talks a lot about asking Jesus into your heart. But I've never heard him say, confess your sins and repent. See, that's a big part of the gospel. It's not just believing, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings, ask Jesus into your heart. That's part of it. But the whole package is, in fact, the, the first message preached by John the Baptist and then by Jesus, John Baptist went to prepare the way of the Lord, Right? And then six months later, here comes Jesus. Guess what was the first words out of both of their mouths? Repent. Very first word. Repent. What does it mean? To turn from your sin and follow God. That is a key element of the gospel. But today, in many quarters of the church, we have a different gospel. And this is exactly what Paul was concerned about, warning about. So again, I will ask you this question is it possible for us to think of ourselves as being in the truth when we really aren't? And how does that happen? By someone coming, preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And Paul says, I'm kind of concerned, guys. I fear, just like the serpent deceived Eve. She was naive. And what, but what really got Eve in trouble was when the devil misquoted God's word, she believed it. She didn't refute it. She, she didn't say, oh, no, 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 that's not what God said. She let the devil twist the word of God, and then she bought into his deception. 
2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come. And folks, we are in this time that Paul's talking about. There is no shadow of a doubt. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Most of the churches that are really preaching and teaching sound doctrine don't have very big congregations. Now, there are some who do. I'm not saying all megachurches are wrong or off. There are some who are good. But by and large, we're living in a day and age where most people... Well, and the evidence is more and more people are turning away from the church. Generation after generation, the younger generation in particular, has left the church in in huge numbers. Fewer and fewer people in our nation are identifying as believers... And fewer and fewer are attending church. They will not endure sound doctrine now. But if you put out some fake phony stuff and you package it well enough, then they'll come. If you can provide them with an exciting enough experience that would be comparable to what they're getting on their iPhones, their iPads, the Internet, right? Today you've got to compete with all that. But we don't. If you want to draw in a lot of these people who will not endure sound doctrine, you've got to give them something which they consider to be even better. The visuals, the lights, the action, the camera. The spiffy young person on the screen giving the announcements and telling you to check out the newest app. I've been there. I've seen it. I've, been, I've seen that. I've been to those churches visiting If you don't have all that flash and splash, because why? Because they won't endure sound. If you will endure sound doctrine, that's all you need. All you need is to worship God and hold to his truth. You don't need all the bells and whistles. But if you're not going to endure sound doctrine, then you've got to have all the other stuff. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Have you heard about Bar Church? I've talked in the past about churches with beer Bible studies. There is actually now a church called Bar Church. They have a bar in the church, and it ain't the kind of bar that Davy Crockett killed because he killed him a bar when he was only three, remember? But it's a bar where you get alcoholic beverages in church. Gee, that might be the other spirit Paul's talking about, a different spirit. What spirit would you like today, sir? How about some wild turkey? It is Thanksgiving after all. Wow, what could be better? Bar church, Sunday before Thanksgiving, I'll have a wild turkey. Woo! (laughs) That's where we're at today, folks. According to their own desires. My Uncle Fred, how many of you remember Uncle Fred? He was a great preacher of the gospel. He's with the Lord now. But he was telling me years ago about this church that he visited where, um, and it was a charismatic church, um, for what that's worth. You know, they tend to be a little more experimental and creative. I'm charismatic. I believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But in this church, the, the pastor had decided that, and this is one of those things where we don't need the Word. We just need the Holy, Holy Ghost. God wants us to start having ballroom dancing in church. And so... I guess that's another version of dancing in the spirit. 
Well, apparently what happened was people started a little dirty dancing. No, I'm serious. This really happened. My uncle visited the church. And people were getting involved with each other that weren't supposed to be. Because the Holy Ghost told them to have ballroom dancing. And then there was another one. This one guy, this one pastor, was uh, being prophetic. He said God had given him a prophetic message, and he stripped naked in front of the whole church because he said God wanted his people to know that they should be naked before the Lord. <laughs> Folks, you're sheltered here. <laughs> you're in a little bubble. You don't know what's out there. Any crazy thing that you can ever think of has happened somewhere in a church where they get away from the truth of God's Word and stop, start moving in the Spirit. But it's the wrong spirit. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, like your Bowser at home, you know, Sergeant, the Wonder Dog, scratching his ears, woo! They have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul prophesied this. It's happened throughout the history of the church, but I would propose that we are now in the very heart of this. We're in the last days. We're in the great apostasy. We're in the great falling away, but I ain't going there. How about you? Are you going to fall away? Nope, not me either. So he says, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified. So the witness and testimony of other true believers is an important gauge of the truthfulness of our faith. The question I ask, is it possible to think ourselves as being in the truth when we really aren't? But there was a testimony. There were people who knew Gaius, and they testified to John, this guy's the real deal. The witness and testimony of other believers is an important gauge of the truthfulness of our faith. In their New Testament writings, the apostles repeatedly refer to the good and bad reports they received about various believers and situations in the local churches. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once, so he had co-workers in various churches that he had planted, and they would send Paul a letter. Paul, here's what's going on in Ephesus. Here's what's going on, you know, wherever it might be. Thessalonica, Galatia. Obviously, the reputation of the person or persons bringing the report is extremely important as well. But what was their report? I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Folks, this is hard for some people to grasp. It's hard sometimes to adhere to it. But our first allegiance above all else must be to the truth Again, where do we find it? God's Word and in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember what the, uh, the apostles told the Sanhedrin when they were called in in the book of Acts. You can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Stop it. Sorry, guys. We must obey God rather than men. That can be hard sometimes. It can affect your relationships with friends and family co-workers, bosses. Our first allegiance must be to the truth 
in the form of God's Word and in the person of Jesus Christ. Sadly, many people have forsworn their allegiance to the truth in favor of allegiance to a man, a woman, or some human ideology. In favor of acceptance and acknowledgement by family, friends, colleagues. Do you realize what a major step it was for Saul who became Paul to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior? Any Jewish person down through history who has accepted Christ has become a total outcast to their family, their friends, and the Jewish community. They even have funerals for them. Now, contrary to the great falling away of the last days, there's another thing going on where now more and more Jewish people are coming to Christ. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in the last days. He promised to restore Israel. So whereas the Gentile world seems to be moving away from Christ, the Jewish world is getting closer. And part of that is because so many Jews have become secularized, non-religious. They're not hardcore orthodox, which are very difficult to reach. But we must, our first allegiance must be to the truth. God's word, the person of Jesus Christ. And if we sacrifice that in order to gain favor or acceptance by men, women, friends, colleagues, family members, then we are in great peril. So many down through the ages have had to make that sacrifice of being rejected. I'm sure you might be one of these people. If not, you probably know someone who's been ostracized by their family and friends because they left the, the family faith, right? Whether you know, it might be Catholicism or what have you, when you depart from that which has been the norm. You get called all kinds of names. Jesus freak, fanatic, traitor, right? Intimidation. Cannot give in to that. Just as you walk in the truth to expand that, just as and how you continue to walk in the truth. And so not only is John commending Gaius for his deep commitment to the truth, he's commending him for um, he, continuing to walk in the truth. See, we can be faithful to the truth one minute, but if we don't strive to continually walk in the truth, the very next moment we can find we begin to wander from the true faith. It can happen that quick. If we don't guard our hearts and minds, if we don't stay rooted and grounded in the truth. So, yes, it's a great commendation to be in the truth. Paul's commending Gaius for continuing. How and continuing. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth... So it can happen, according to the writers of the New Testament. Someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so we do have a responsibility. Oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to make them mad at me. Well, they're going to be a lot more offended and a lot more mad if they wind up in the other place because you didn't tell them. In this personal letter to Gaius, John continues with the two major themes of truth and love. And once again, his emphasis is on, as we capped off the last book, 2 John, continuing, walking in truth and love, persevering, enduring, maintaining a lifestyle of truth and love. 
And folks, we all know this is no easy task. I'm not saying that it is. It's going to take sincere, earnest effort on our part, along with the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. I can't do it without God's help. Which, thank God, is available to every believer. Jesus said, ask, seek, knock. And he says, the Heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to his children. How much more will he give the Holy Spirit? Again, we think gifts. Oh, wow, cool. Material things. I can't wait. But then Jesus changes the whole ball game when he talks about the gifts that God will give to those who ask, seek, and knock. How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We need it. God says, ask. I'm ready to give it. Father, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength I need to walk in the truth, to walk in love. And finally, Galatians 6, 9, and 10, let us not grow weary while doing good. Now, why would Paul write that? None of us in this room have ever grown weary while doing good, right? Never. It's a piece of cake. No. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season, and who decides what the due season is? God. In due season, we shall reap whatever God wants us to reap, whatever blessings He wants to bestow upon us. And I do believe those have to do primarily with eternity. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. My wife was sharing with me a prayer that she had prayed quite often that God would begin to bust, to deal with these sex traffickers, child traffickers, pedophiles. And then lo and behold, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested. She felt that was a direct answer to her prayer. And I'll buy that. That's a, that's a reaping. She'd been praying that for a long time, and I'm sure she's not the only one. And there are others that need to be dealt with. But in due season, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. That's sowing good seed. Because before this, earlier in this chapter, Paul talks about sowing and reaping. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap of the flesh. If he sows to the Spirit, he will reap of the Spirit. So we sow good seed by doing good to all. But then finally, he says, especially, and here's where it ties in with this idea that we as believers have a particular responsibility not only to love one another, but to be friends with one another especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our first responsibility is to our fellow believers. How can we hope to reach the world for Christ if we're not loving and friendly towards one another? Would you agree? Let's stand. Father God, thank you so much for the amazing information that's contained in your word as we just begin to dig in and look at it because you wrote it, Lord. It's so far beyond any human literary work. Lord, you can pack so much into every verse because you are the creator of all things, the master of the universe, the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, this morning as we close, we pray that you would help us to take this truth that you've imparted to us today, take it with us, help us to apply it in our lives, help us, Lord, to be rooted and firmly grounded in the truth. Just like John, just like his good friend Gaius, 
Lord, help us to be rooted and grounded in the truth, to walk in truth and love. Help us to be earnest, to be sincere, to be dedicated. And we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the power we need, the strength we need to be like these great men of the faith that we read about in your word. Now as we close, Lord, we pray that anyone who would need prayer today for any reason that you draw them by your spirit, that they might come to the front, receive that ministry of the laying on of hands and of prayer. Lord, thank you that you've made this available to us. We don't have to leave here today in doubt, questioning our relationship with you. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, that they would come and receive Christ as Lord and Savior today. Anyone who's wandered from the fold, they would come back and recommit their life to you. Lord, we know it's important to make a public proclamation of our faith. Lord, bless this time of ministry and receive our final offering of worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.